Welcome to the Reminger Report podcast on emerging technologies. Reminger Co. LPA is a full-service law firm with over 150 lawyers spread across 14 offices and serving states throughout the Midwest. My name is Zach Pyers, and I'm a partner in Reminger's Columbus, Ohio office. And I'm Kenton Steele, an associate in Reminger's Columbus office. This podcast on emerging technologies will examine how changes in technology and business models affect our daily lives and how the law is adapting to respond to these changes. On today's podcast, we'll be continuing our discussion on ride-sharing regulations and cover some of the areas where we most frequently see specific regulations put in place to um, dictate requirements that ride-sharing companies must follow in order to be allowed to operate in a jurisdiction. So, Zach, can you tell us some of uh, the most common regulatory issue that that we see across this space? Sure. One of the most common uh, regulatory issues that we see uh, surrounds insurance, right? There's a handful of other ones that we're going to be talking about from privacy to record keeping um, to driver identification. But by and large, one of the most prominent ones that we see across the regulatory schemes or structures or landscape relates to insurance. And so when we when we talk about, you know, the regulations a lot of them are focused on or at least include insurance. And I, and I think when we heard Karen speak on this topic on some of our earlier episodes, was, she was even indicating to us that some of the regulatory schemes that the states have sometimes just are an insurance-based statute. And so um, by and large, the most common one is probably insurance. And what are some of the differences we see in insurance regulations from jurisdiction to jurisdiction? So what we see is that you're, there's some common kind of standards as it relates to the insurance aspects. And so kind of a baseline that a lot of states use is, is $1 million dollars in coverage. Now, I've got to clarify that because it, it, the $1 million in coverage just doesn't apply all the time to every, you know, transportation network company, driver, slash ride-sharing driver. And so what we see is that the, the general standard when the driver is kind of in the course and scope, not to use the employment term and confuse them necessarily as an employee, but when they are driving to pick up a ride or they are transporting a passenger during that phase they are um, have a one million dollars in coverage usually for the third party liability now one of the other things that we kind of see um, is that some states this amount varies you've got some states where the the amount is a lot is a lot less it could be three hundred thousand or five hundred thousand. And then you have some states where it's 1.5 million or 2 million in coverage. And so you really have to kind of be specific um, and kind of watch that as it rates from a rate as it relates to a regulatory kind of structure. The other thing that we see is that there is 
uninsured or underinsured motorist coverage required in some states, but not all. And so some states require this coverage and have very specific regulations as to during what phases of the ride sharing it applies. Um, and so that's another issue that you kind of have to be careful of or, or review um, as it relates to um, the regulations. Now, the other thing that I will say is that there is usually a standard minimum that each ride-sharing company will have regardless of what the regulations say. So, for example, you know, I was just checking as it relates to Uber's website and the amounts that they disclose on their website. And so they set forth that um, what, during the phase why, where a driver is waiting to pick up a passenger – so they're available, the app is on, but they don't have a rider in the car, nor are they on their way to pick up a rider, that there is 50,000 in bodily injury per person, 100,000 in bodily injury per accident, and $25,000 in property damage per accident. So without a passenger in the car, without being on the way to pick up one, regardless of the regulations, these minimums would still apply. And we see the higher amount, the $1 million in minimum coverage, apply when the driver is en route or has a passenger in a car. And so that's not the uninsured or underinsured. That's really just the third-party liability coverage. And so that's kind of the, the overarching um, you know, landscape as it relates to the insurance. And Zach, can you tell us a little bit about why this issue of insurance regulations in the ride-sharing space is relevant or important to um, the context of litigation related to ride-sharing accidents. Absolutely. So, I mean, it should come as no surprise to most of our listeners, or at least a lot of them, right, that a lot of litigation is funded by, whether it's on the plaintiff or the defense side, litigation and some, uh, insurance in some way. And so insurance plays a, a, a very key role as it relates to litigation because it it acts as that you know, stopgap safety measure to protect companies and entities from you know uh, unknown or um, kind of unpredictable outcomes and so when we see these kind of amounts disclosed up front via the regulation and some of the public disclosures by these ride sharing and TNC companies, it helps to kind of set the minimum expectation or standards as to what these, uh, you know, potentially injured parties may be able to recover. And so without issues of having to pierce the corporate veil or uh, prove respondeat superior or that somebody was an employee, employer, those insurance that's being provided is kind of one of the areas that helps to create predictability and, and it kind of acts as almost a protection to the consumers. These companies are able to operate in this space knowing that there is a mechanism for recovery um, in case somebody is injured. And, and turning to the next topic here, um, something we've discussed is ride-sharing companies really try to posture themselves as being technology companies. And as technology companies, one of the things that they are – um, very good at is collecting and using data, including customer data. Is that something where we see regulations being put in place or um, different mechanisms to protect that information being utilized by these companies? 
Yeah, so, I mean, I think this comes as no surprise to a lot of people, and I think this probably was discussed in some of our earlier episodes when we kind of discussed one of the arguments raised by ride-sharing companies as to why they are not an employer. And that, that, that argument was that they're not actually providing these rides to people. As a company, these ride-sharing companies slash TNCs are really – they're really technology companies, right? They're like a, a sophisticated phone book connecting riders and passenger or drivers and riders. So it should come as no surprise that one of the issues that comes up with a technology company is an issue of, of data and privacy, right? And so a lot of states have some level of protection, but it, it's not nearly as an expansive landscape as you see as it relates to the insurance. And so there's a lot of states that don't necessarily have specific laws governing these ride-sharing or TNC companies' protection of passenger data. Now, I will say that what we saw was we saw kind of a, a public outrage a couple of um, years ago when it came out in 2016 that Uber was actually tracking passengers' locations even after their ride ended, even after they were dropped off. And so it came to light that these smartphones everybody is carrying around in their pockets can actually be utilized to track people and their locations. And so it came to light that we could figure out not only what restaurant we dropped you off at, but did you go to a bar across the street later? Did you go back to your house or maybe you went to, you know, your girlfriend's house or maybe you went somewhere you sh shouldn't be going? And so the the location data was then leaked. Um, and, you know, it became a big deal not only for the, the people whose data was leaked, but it became a big deal for Uber as a public relations issue because it, it, people started to realize how much data these companies were actually collecting on them. So, you know, we're talking about, you know, four and a half, almost five years after this kind of came to light. But it should become as no surprise that these companies use a lot of data for a lot of different reasons, right? They use it to help with the surge pricing that Karen had talked about in some of our prior episodes. They use it to help to, to create, to, you know, properly staff um, as, as best as possible to encourage drivers uh, when they know there's going to be high levels of ridership. And so it, it, it helps to, it helps them in a lot of those ways and to ensure kind of a, a comprehensive and, um, consistent model, right? Because they use the data to track passengers. And if I'm a bad passenger and I'm getting a lot of low reviews, they're going to track that data to potentially ban me from the app. Same thing with the drivers, right? If they if a driver is getting unsafe or, or bad reviews, they get too many low ones, then they may be removed or suspended. And so, but when it comes to tracking this, you know, we, we kind of see a less comprehensive scheme across the various um, regulations. And what are some of the common issues that come up as it relates to protecting the data that's collected by these companies? So the two of the big components are the, the personal identifiable information, social security number, uh, addresses, um, telephone numbers, 
emails, but one of the other big ones is the financial information. And so what we see is that, you know, a lot of people, the credit card information or debit card information is stored right inside the app. And so there, there is some kind of legislature, legislation and regulations that's targeted at trying to protect both the, the individual consumer, but also the financial information. And I've heard about some of this information being disclosed. Can you tell me uh, some more about that issue? Sure. So, I mean, by by far, probably the biggest one that, that kind of has come out um, was was the one I referenced a few minutes ago back in 2016 um, when they came out that they were actually tracking the location of people even when they weren't utilizing the app. And I think a lot of people expected, right, that they were going to track you while you were using the app because that's how they knew where to pick you up. That's how they knew where you were actually traveling and that's how they know or knew where you were dropped off. So what well, that was by and far one of the larger ones. But, you know, we've seen other ones with other other TNCs and other ride-sharing companies have issues with regards to um, their customer data being exposed um, through data breaches and the like, which, um, you know, we'll talk at much greater length about data breaches, not just in the ride-sharing context, but kind of just in the larger consumer context in some of our, our later episodes. Now, thinking about the way in which uh, regulators are able to act to respond to concerns, obviously part of that would involve needing to have some understanding of what a company is doing, how that company is operating, uh, and and that can give rise to sort of record-keeping and reporting requirements. So what are some of the common areas of record-keeping that ride-sharing companies are required to, to provide and hand over to regulators? So we talked about kind of the piecemeal application, right, of the um, the customer data and the privacy surrounding that as it relates to the regulations, the record keeping. What we see is that a lot of states require some form of record keeping, but there's really uh, not a uniform standard as to what is being required to be kept. So, for example, several states require TNCs or ride-sharing companies to retain records of trips and the drivers for one year. And so some states, that's really one of the only things that they're required to maintain um, is just to know what the trips were and who was driving them. Now, Colorado, for example, gives a little bit more, and they mandate the retention of vehicle inspection records for 14 months criminal backgrounds for the drivers for five years, and the driver history checks for three years. And so you kind of see in Colorado this other kind of, you know, scheme or or application um, as it relates to some of the things that Colorado mandates. Now, most states do obligate that a TNC be able to produce certain records to a regulator in response to a complaint or an investigation. And so this presupposes that the companies are actually keeping and maintaining those records so that they can be produced. So that's one of the issues that I mean, I think a lot of people uh, or a lot of these entities are prepared for. Um, but again, you know, they are trying to comply with several different states um, forms of, of regulations. And so you see that kind of in some states are much more um, kind of restrictions. 
A few states, for example, North Dakota contains a semi-annual reporting requirement where the documents have to be reported or turned over on a semi-annual basis. Other states uh, have a reporting requirement that is triggered only when accidents occur. And so um, you see that um, also happen in certain states. Um, it helps to report and, and have that information potentially could be a resource if you're in litigation or involved in some other tangential matter where, where you've got these records that might be um, recoverable. Now, we see one of the other ones that I like to talk about kind of at the end is, is Virginia's which law, which also contains a specific record-keeping requirement, and they've got a lot of stuff. And I won't go into all of it, but just, just to show you kind of a minimum, they require criminal history checks, the results of driver history, driver's license records, results of, of uh, sex offender screening, proof of compliance with vehicle ownership, registration and inspection requirements, driver insurance, proof of compliance with notice and disclosure requirements for relating to the operational requirements, insurance and driver screening, proof that the TNC obtained certification of the driver of securing consent of each owner, lessor or lessee of the vehicle, data regarding the driver activity, which is logged into the platform, records regarding any action taken against a driver, contracts or agreement between the TNC and the driver, information identifying each driver, including name, date of birth, driver's license, and state issuing the license, and then a couple of other pieces of information relating to the specific vehicles. Now, I, I, I go through that list just to show you that some states, you know, the the, the record-keeping requirements can kind of be a little bit more extensive than others. And how is that information then reported to these regulatory bodies? So, and I, and I think what we see in some of these kind of ways is that sometimes it's recorded in the specific instances, meaning some states are requiring it semi-annually. Other states are requiring it when there's a triggering event, such as an accident. Other states have it um, specifically on an annual um, basis. And then the other, the other kind of more common, or I should say more common, but consistent is that it's available on demand when the regulators or investigators demand it. And so, for example, if a, a customer make, makes a complaint to the regulatory body, the regulatory body may then subpoena or request the records from the company. So that's a pretty common way that these, these records are obtained um, or secured. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Reminger Report podcast on emerging technologies. Please be sure to join us for our next episode where we'll be continuing our discussion on ride-sharing regulations and we'll be diving into some of the regulatory issues that are specific to uh, ensuring passenger and, and rider safety. Mm -hmm.